0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first podcast of February 21. Um, So we have had a very fruitful first month of this year. We have done four podcasts, and we're starting with another one, the number 38, where we had the pleasure to have an amazing guest, Uh, one more very cool guest, which was uh, Lucian Rakovitan. I'm not sure about the pronunciation of the last name, but um, yeah, And uh, Lucian was very nice to me. I know about him because a former friend of uh, mine, a friend from my university, worked at his studio in uh, Romania. And this is how I got to know about him. And he was very kind, accepted the invitation to our podcast. And we had a very, very um, inspiring and very friendly chat with him. So to shorten up a little bit what this is, amazing about him is that uh, so he studied for uh, around a semester in romania and he understood that university wasn't the right one for him so he moved to ireland where he completed a degree bachelor degree in architecture and then he applied for burke group and he got a job and then he worked there for 10 years with a short parenthesis in japan where he worked for kengo kuma But yeah, as we know, Japan has a lot of earthquakes, so he didn't uh, find that experience very pleasant for him, and he came back to Copenhagen and worked there, and then he left, and he took part in an architectural competition where he he got the second place, and this is how that was sort of the jump, the 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 leap uh, of fate to start his own office. And yeah, now he's back in Romania and he's doing visualizations with his team for the leading uh, architectural companies in the world, as Bjork Ingels, Kengo Kuma and others. Uh, So I would suggest you to go into the description of the podcast to check his uh, social media, his websites, because um, the work he and his team does, uh, it's very, very amazing. So I suggest you to go check it out. But before we start the podcast, uh, I want to remind you that we were thinking about how to avoid you to listen to this podcast if you don't want to, or to listen only what you want to listen. And uh, as you know, we are also building a platform where, which we will launch this year with articles and more content about creativity and uh, the different creative industries and our guests, so... In the meanwhile, you can join and subscribe for our newsletter. So you can get uh, an abstract every month for, from our podcast episodes, our guests, our content with the best of uh, what we have learned, why you should listen to a certain episode. So if you want to know more about that, check the link in the description or the link in our social media channels which are at tci podcast and the creative the creative insider on linkedin and facebook and yeah join our newsletter to get the best of and to know uh which guest was on our podcast or what kind of podcast we did if it wasn't an interview and what was what was the best of so yeah i hope you will you will enjoy the number 38 and thank you very much for the support Enjoy the conversation.
1: how are you doing? Hey, man. Thanks for having me at the Creative Insider podcast.
0: Uh, Thank you very much for accepting my invitation. Um, As I was telling you in the pre-chit-chat of the the podcast, I found out about you and your company uh, from my friend Mateo, who now works uh, at your office, I guess. And I was very surprised because usually Romanian people go to work in italy and as i grew up in italy i know a lot of people from romania and then this was the first case where i, I was uh, also a little bit you know like um joking with matteo because i said you're the first italian <laughs> going to romania probably uh so it's cool um th- <laughs> thank you very much for accepting the invitation because the the your work that you do looks amazing and uh it would be very interesting for me to discover your background Um, So, for the people who don't know you a lot, you can shortly introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, and where you're from.
1: Yeah, so, um, I'm Lucian, and uh, we have a small office in Bucharest called uh, Bucharest Studio. And uh, it happens that we are about uh, eight people now, but we're growing steadily. And, uh, of course, we have uh, one Italian, which seems like a miracle. <laughs> I don't know why. But, uh, yeah, I guess that's, uh, that's us.
0: Uh, and uh, since when did you start this company? How old is the company?
1: We started in November 2018. And at the time, we were in uh, Copenhagen. Ovi and I we were two partners in the company. And I think uh, we were there for a year almost, and then we moved to Bucharest because of uh, certain reasons. And uh, yeah, since then, we're, we grew a bit.
0: Well, I guess that those certain reasons are because in Copenhagen, probably the the, the life it's way more expensive than in, in Romania, or not only.
1: I mean, I wish that was the, the case, but I think in reality what happens is that Personally, I
0: had some uh, ah, okay. family
1: things, yeah. Okay. So I needed to
0: take care of those. I understand, I understand. and um, But I'm curious to, to know your story since the beginning. So um, when in your life did you think that you, I guess, you're educated as an architect uh, so, when in your life you started uh, wrapping your mind around the idea of becoming an architect and studying architecture, or and um, how this idea grew into your mind?
1: Okay, that's a that's a funny one because I think I never really decided to be an architect. It was more like a, I was 17, and then I wanted to be a cab driver, but uh, at the time I didn't really have a driving license, which I actually got really late in my life, but. Um, I think it was my older brother that was already studying architecture. So I said, I mean, why not? He's already setting the footsteps for me. And then I just uh, jumped in the train and uh, became an architect. Uh,
0: and uh, how how old is your older, like how many years older than you is your older brother?
1: He's, he's actually about five years older than me. But I think that kind of, I mean, the reason that he started doing architecture set up a sort of philosophy for me because I figured out that I can take the easy path in life somehow. If somebody just sets the footsteps for, for you, you can always jump in the train and just take a shortcut. So I think that became a bit of a philosophy, like a life philosophy for me, because now when I, let's say, if we're doing an image now in the office and within 15 minutes, something doesn't look good, I think we didn't take the easy path. And I think we need to revision that and maybe like, uh, spend the, the next 15 minutes changing the mood or changing the camera, or doing something that would actually make the
0: image look good in fifteen minutes. That's a that's a cool philosophy. It's the first time I'm I'm hearing here on the podcast. But when you started studying architecture, uh, was your um, philosophy confirmed that taking architecture is the easy path, or uh, was it rather you know uh, different than you t- than you thought?
1: But actually, I think with architecture in school it was more like. I kind of hated it in some way because I went there thinking that it's about doing nice images and building some nice buildings. But then in the end, it became a lot of like theory and like physics and statics and how the buildings actually behave in an earthquake and stuff like that, which we do have in Romania earthquakes. But uh, yeah, I I think I I didn't really enjoy that part of it at all. And I was really good at uh, the studio part, which is actually the part where you present the project. But then we had another 15 other
0: curriculums that I hated. Oh yeah, that's the same case for me because in, in Rome we have a lot of that physics and uh, mathematics too and then I, uh, I tried to cheat on those by going in Erasmus here in Germany and, <laughs> and doing some other exams and explaining to my home university that this is math here. Um, so it's a very common thing. Uh, but I'm curious, where did you study your, I don't know, you have a bachelor and master, I guess, and where did you study and how, how is the process to get into the university where you studied in, I guess, in Romania? or?
1: Yeah, I mean, I started in Romania, which was kind of, uh, I was 17 at the time when I not really started university, but I started preparing because in Romania, before you actually start going to university itself, you need to prepare a bit because the exam for entering the university, it's like a, almost five hours or six hours exam where you go and you get an A0 paper and you need you have a brief and you need to, to draw for the next six hours this uh, kind of, I don't know, this exam or like whatever brief. And then based on that, you get accepted at the university and then you get a place within, if you get a place within the first 100. Like, if you get admitted be, be, between the first 100, then you don't have to pay for university. If you get admitted between the first 200, then you kind of need to pay for it. I mean, luckily enough, I was quite good at drawing, so I got between the first 10. But but, but I think in general, I, this was when I was back at school, but I, it changed meanwhile. Now you don't really have that path anymore. I think now you just, they would just evaluate your, I don't know, your exams in the last, Ten years of school or something like that, and then they would just admit you based on that.
0: But if you say you managed to qualify within the first ten, uh, you must have been kind of talented for drawings the, your whole life. Or when did did you discover this talent?
1: I mean, I didn't. I, I never realized I was actually good at the drawing. I mean, I I went in these uh, first two preparatory years before you go to university. I went and studied with some guy how to draw and then i don't know i think when i got closer to the exam he just mentioned that you're actually you shouldn't be worried about getting into university but then when i went there to see where i was placed like what kind of place i got in the university it took me a while to find myself because i never really looked up there in the first uh, top places
0: uh, and what what was the subject of, of your ear when you were starting uh, like when you what did you need to draw in that exam
1: yeah that's funny because I think uh, you have about three exercises or like whatever that's what they call them in Roman I don't know what they're called in english but you have to draw t- three things so one of the things it's a perspective and at this time there was a perspective of a playground for kids and then the second exercise was one of the famous buildings in Romania. I think was the circus, like the State Circus. And the third uh, exercise was uh, a disc- descriptive geometry exercise, where you need to intersect some shapes. I think was like some spheres and some cones, and you need to find some some certain points. It's a, it's a bit more mathematical, I guess.
0: And uh, how were the first uh, months and first uh, years in university? Uh, how were your grades there? And uh, how did it develop? <laughs> it, was a, it
1: was a goddamn disaster. I mean, like I got first, I mean, I got in the first day in the university and within the first year I was one of the worst students. And my girlfriend at the time, she was a violinist. And then she, uh, this was, I think, two thousand seven, 2007, yeah. And I think this was the year where Romania actually joined the EU and she managed to get an Erasmus uh, kind of scholarship or whatever it's called. And she uh, flew to Ireland. And uh, within the first month of living in Ireland, she wrote to me that I should come there, that it's nice and I should come see her. So I went there to see her and then she convinced me to go to the architectural, architectural school there and maybe present my portfolio. So I went there and then presented my portfolio. And then uh, the guy said, "You know what? Tomorrow we're going on a school trip, and you should join us." So I was there with like a luggage for two weeks, and I ended up staying there for three years.
0: That's funny. And but did you need some certain, also English certification to get admitted in their university there, or how did that work?
1: Yeah, like yeah, I think I didn't need anything. I mean, luckily enough, I think she was. Already at this time, lecturing the daughters of like she was teaching the daughters of the director of school. She was teaching them some uh, violin lessons, and I think already the guy was more like when I went to the to this interview, he was already there, and then he was kind of like I don't think he cared about all this stuff because we kind of seemed uh, the first uh, first Romanians to join you and then they, we seem motivated. And he was kind of happy to have uh, motivated students around.
0: And uh, so you just basically studied just a few months in in Romania, and then you directly moved to Ireland, if I understood correctly. No,
1: it was more of a full year, ah. and then I think the second year I went uh, I went over.
0: But you didn't even complete your bachelor. You just went to Ireland, Ireland.
1: No, I didn't complete my bachelor's in in Romania. I couldn't. I mean, I had no chance whatsoever. It was too tough. Uh, Studying Romania
0: this time. I understand the same. I felt the same for me in Italy, and that's why we had the Erasmus as an escape, and uh, that worked for me. And um, I'm curious, how was the university in Ireland? Because so far, I don't know anyone who have studied in Ireland. Uh, we have had people on the podcast from uh, the UK but uh, never from, from Ireland. So how was the university there compared to your experience in Romania?
1: <laughs> I mean, it was funny because I went to uh, uni there and then I was the only uh, foreign student. Like everybody else was Irish and this was like really funny. And then all the all my classmates, they were dressed in tracksuits and some sneaks and they didn't really have some sort of like an affinity for architecture. I think they were there for fun or something sort of reason i don't know and then slowly i got kind of accustomed to that so at first i was taking it super serious the school but then i realized that it's actually a bit of a more relaxed environment than i was expecting and we had only two two things in the curriculum we had studio and besides that we had some anthropology or something like that and it was really easy somehow because we were like we were spending most of the time in studio drawing and experimenting and having fun
0: and how many years is the are the studies in Ireland?
1: It's uh, four plus one. So you do four years of bachelor's and then you do one of the master's.
0: And uh, in which city you were in Dublin or?
1: No, I wish I was in Dublin. I was in Cork. I mean, I'm joking. I wish I was in Dublin. I really loved Cork. It was like a small, almost countryside city in the uh, south of uh, Ireland. It's about 300,000 people living there.
0: And uh, did you have any cultural shock when you moved to Ireland compared to, I don't know, to your Romanian background or how the people in Romania usually are compared to the um, Irish people?
1: I guess I had at the time, yeah, especially that my English sucked at the time. So it was really hard to get on board. It was really hard. But then finally, I think at the students and then my classmates, which are also like some of them, they're now my best friends, let's say, I think... They were really really nice. I think Irish people in general they're like the nicest people around so I think that helped me a lot.
0: I didn't know that because usually you know you, I don't know a lot of Irish people and they I, I know only from you know what I've heard online that they get a lot into fights and stuff like that.
1: <laughs> so uh, maybe it's uh, I think that I think that draws people together these fights I think it's I had this feeling that every time you went out and party like if you went to a club, You had two options. You either get drunk and go home with a girl, or you get drunk and fight a guy. I think this is kind of a bit of the culture. And I think that kind of draws people together because it's just more like, I mean, if you have a problem, you can stand for it in some way. I know it's bizarre to say that in a normal environment, but I think it's fun in Ireland.
0: And I'm curious, uh, was the, your education there particularly focused on, I don't know, digital technologies, softwares, and topics like that? Because uh, I guess then your further career, and now it's based on on this, um, your of your talent to create images, even by drawing, and now creating them with a the software. So was your education very good towards this direction or you were just yourself curious about how to use softwares for architecture i
1: think think it's it's mixed a bit i think it's more like yeah you you're pushed a bit by the teachers if they see that you have a skill then they will be helping you develop that skill but um Generally, I don't think it's a very technological-driven school, or at least it wasn't at the time. Maybe it's a bit more now. But I think most of my classmates, they would still draw by pencils and stuff at the time. And But the reason that we had a lot of time in studio, we had so much time to experiment, I think that kind of left me with a lot of experimenting in uh, softwares.
0: Um, before we go on with this topic I missed uh, a little bit the elephant in the corridor so to say Uh, you said that you moved uh, from Romania to uh, Ireland very quickly Um, how was like the life expenses in in, um, Ireland how much did you need to pay off tuition or did you get any scholarship or did you need to work on the side how did you manage to so quickly move from from Romania to, to Ireland
1: Uh, I think at the time, yeah, it wasn't like super expensive to live in Ireland. I think I could live with under a thousand euro a month. And I would, uh, at times I would just be helping uh, one of the tutors as well to uh, teach software and things like that. And I would get a bit of uh, pocket money from that. And then I did some other small jobs on the side. And I think uh, when I was just uh, Tracked into the worst mod, my parents would also help me.
0: I see. And um, which software did you start to learn and to experiment with in the beginning? Uh, what was uh, your focus on in the beginning?
1: I think in the very beginning, we used, uh, I mean, I used 3ds Max in school and uh, I was rendering in V-Ray. But then uh, soon after graduation, I moved to, uh, I mean, immediately after graduation, I moved to Copenhagen to work for a big bjarke group where I spent the next 10 years of my life. And uh, there I um, switched from 3DS Max into Rhino because everybody was using Rhino and because it's a more versatile software when it comes to uh, 3D geometry and modeling and stuff like that. It's not as uh, strong when it comes to loads of uh, geometry, like it cannot take a lot of uh, polygons as Max does. But uh, as a like as a modeling software,
0: it's more versatile. And uh, but did you move to Copenhagen uh, as uh, soon as you were finished with your uh, with your masters or bachelor's? When did you move? Was that your first job actually after university?
1: Yeah. So the thing is that uh, I did a small break between my bachelor's and my masters, where I went. So I finished uh, my bachelor's and then I moved to Copenhagen for six months. And while I was in Copenhagen, one of my uh, best friends there, he was Japanese from Tokyo, and he used to work for Kengo Kuma. And then he was like, hey, uh, dude, what about uh, you go to Tokyo as well to experiment a bit of the culture, because it's really nice. And I was like, yeah, I mean, fuck it, why not? Let's go to uh, Tokyo. So I went to uh, Tokyo. This was March 2011. And then uh, I rented the house. For the next six months, I signed the contract and all that. I signed the contract with the... uh, office with Kanga Kuma. And then uh, within a week, there was the biggest earthquake they've ever experienced. It was like a 9.1 magnitude where the whole island shifted like uh, half a meter sideways. And uh, that kind of uh, made me shit my pants and uh, pack my stuff and leave the day after the earthquake. And uh, lucky enough, my dad at the time, he was living in uh, Sardinia. So I went over to Sardinia and spent some uh, months there and then uh, relaxing and taking it easy after this uh, life-threatening experience and then uh, while i was there already uh, the guys from copenhagen from from the archangels group then they were writing hey man you didn't finish this render Uh, can you send it to me this was uh, just maybe one week after i left big and i was in tokyo already but then i was like yeah i mean uh, i didn't finish it because i moved to tokyo and then the guy's like wow what the fuck why did you move there when you're done with uh, tokyo you should come back so after Sardinia, I wrote back to the guys saying that, oh yeah, now I'm done with uh, Tokyo. Is it? Uh, do you still have some uh, stuff happening there? So they were like, yeah, of course, just come back and then we'd love to have you on board. So I went back to Copenhagen, where I spent the next three and a half years. This was almost a sum of uh, almost five years with breaks at big, And then after that, I went to finish my master's which was 2014, between 2014 to 2015. And after 2015, when I was done with my master's, I went back to big until 2018, November, almost 2019.
0: So you went from Ireland to Denmark and then from Denmark to Tokyo, from Tokyo to Sardinia and from Sardinia back to Copenhagen.
1: Yeah, something like that.
0: And um, were you surprised that you got the first time the job at Big? Like, how did you apply? Was it a lot of... Uh, because when you explain these things, I, I really much like your style because you, you sort of take it for granted that things going to happen. Like, let's move to Ireland. Let's move to Copenhagen. Let's move to Tokyo. <laughs> so it's really cool that you're so, like, I don't know, take it lightly and a uh, positive way. Uh, so I'm curious, did you did you actually also like more um, carelessly send your first um, application for BIG or were you very much into joining that office? How did that happen?
1: I think it's a bit of a mix. I mean, I always liked BIG when I was in uni and I thought it was like the only office where I wanted to work. And then... Uh, then, after graduating, after getting my bachelor's, I was uh, sitting around with my brother. And then he was like, uh, ah, You should apply for for a job now. It would be fun to work before you do your master's. And I was like, Very skeptical about it. I was like, ah, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I'm good enough to get a job. I'm not sure if anybody would accept me. And he was Dude, he was like, Just relax. Like, I mean, just get your portfolio, send it somewhere, and for sure you're going to get a job. So he really convinced me to send the portfolio to B. And then I sent the portfolio, and within two hours, the guys were writing back, "Hey, are you available tomorrow?" And I said, "Oh, I just need maybe a week to pack my stuff and I'm uh, coming over." And I guess that's almost like my second philosophy in life that you cannot really do everything. I mean, you cannot do anything alone. It's always like a teamwork. And I think the way we we run the office now it's it's a bit like that. It's more like a teamwork, like we, nobody has the skills to do everything. Each of us has like certain skills, and then we contribute wherever
0: we can. With it, yeah, and it's a little bit the butterfly effect because if you wouldn't have sent uh, your portfolio, maybe your life would have been totally different. Um, but I'm I'm curious. Um, did you did you have um, so like if you if you have somewhere online this first portfolio you sent to to Big, it would be curious uh, to send me a link of it so that. I can put it in the description of the podcast and the listeners can can see. like.
1: <laughs> I think I have it. I think I can uh, dig it from somewhere. And it's funny because it's not really a portfolio. It was more like I took uh, 15 renders from uh, school and then I just uh, collaged them together and then I send it over.
0: But um, I think that there is this misconception that you need really a portfolio because, for example, for my first uh, job, for most of the jobs I have gotten so far, um, I have taken just my layouts for the university exams, for the university presentations, because if you do them um, pretty good during your semester, it's actually uh, a proof that you... And do a project, and you don't have to re-put it together into a portfolio. You could just send your uh, your layouts, and and that's your portfolio. So
1: that's that's cool. But yeah, if yeah, I guess I guess it's like that. I mean, I was in my uh, long uh, experience, at big. I was at points also like uh, responsible for reviewing portfolios, and I think at times there would be like 500 portfolios coming maybe in a week or even more, a thousand portfolios in a week. And then you'd have to review that so fast. You wouldn't have time to really read much about it. You just like flick through and then you immediately can tell if somebody has the skills or not.
0: I see. I hope you didn't review mine because (laughs) I didn't get the job there. Oh, fuck, man. I'm so sorry about that. (laughs) Until, until Until when did you do this reviewing job?
1: No, it was just until you applied. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, no 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 tell me the year <laughs> no, no i
1: can't remember for sure <laughs> <laughs> no
0: no bad feelings if i didn't no, manage no uh, maybe i didn't yeah. do a great job um uh, well um and how was working at big because uh I, as i said i have applied sometimes uh you know with a very low hope and probably with not that big time investment as um i should have done and um they always say you know you have to be prepared for stressful hours and stressful conditions um so how how was it for you working there how was your whole experience
1: i think i was lucky enough to be in there before uh, all these things with the stressful conditions and stressful environment uh, came into play i don't even i mean i don't know when i left it wasn't uh, that horrible at all it was kind of fun because i mean I spent most of my 20s in there. And I feel like it's because everybody, like not everybody, but half of the office was my age at the time. We were like half of the people. When I joined, we were 70, just so you get an idea. And when I left, we were 500. And when I joined, it was more like 30 to 40 people. We were between 20s and 30s, including most of the partners now. And, and even Bjarke himself was like in his 30s. And it was just like, it was a fun environment. It was just like, we would work, we would have like massive projects and we would have deliverable, like stuff to deliver. But then at the end of the day, we would just be like all of us hanging together, like going for dinner, going out, partying, making out between each other. It's like today you'd be with one person for the office, the other day you'd be with somebody else. It was a fun place. It was more like this kind of a big family. Uh,
0: did you have a lot to do with uh, Bjorke himself, or he was already pretty busy going uh, here and there?
1: I think it was pretty, but we did—I mean, we did travel quite a few times, not like, quite extensively, actually. And then we were hanging, we went out several times. Like he—he he didn't seem so. Uh, he seemed pretty down to earth at the time. And I think when I left, he was pretty much the same, just that he was a bit older and way busier.
0: Um, I'm curious. I have had already people from Big on the podcast. Uh, recently was uh, Oliver Thomas on the podcast thirty, number thirty. He was the um, he's currently the uh, Beam and Computational Manager, one of the Beam compu- Computational Experts in the office in New York. Um, and I was asking him to be of of uh, about like if he knows if Björk himself is some like. Uh, modeling genius or sketching genius or he just have the ideas and, and his uh, teammates uh, implement them because the ideas, like the, the design ideas of that uh, office are pretty remarkable and, and crazy in a good way. So that you have a long experience there. Was the office full of some architectural geniuses or was Bjork this very innovative guy? How did that work?
1: I think it's a, it's a mix. I think I think he's really uh, visionary, he has like this very strong sense of, because he lived in Denmark, he has this really st- so, uh, strong sense of uh, community, and he really believes that people should do things together and they should hang out together. And I think that's the driving force of great work. I don't think great work can be done somewhere alone in the dark. I think great work, it's only done in great environments with great people.
0: I see. And um, that's really I can't counterintuitive because uh, I don't know many Danish people, but they see, seems rather, you know, more reserved and shy than very community-oriented.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's the misconception about uh, Nordic countries in general, that they're just sitting there in uh, the dark winter days and they're all pale and uh, they hate people. But <laughs> in reality, it's just like uh, Denmark is like the nicest place to live. It's like everybody's like just so happy and then welcoming, and they have this uh, super social life. And I think it's rooted in in their ideology of life that started like a hundred years ago with a, a guy called Yente that set up of uh, a set of rules of how people should live.
0: That's uh, that's interesting and sounds very Scandinavian to set up. Like uh, life rules. But I had the uh, opportunity to meet some Danish people here in Germany also when I was a student. Uh, and I, I noticed that the difference uh, of their personas it's uh, so big when they're like drunk and sober.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that uh, available for everybody? Like, uh, uh, I think alcohol helped me uh, really uh, become a normal person. Because when I was young, I was like super introvert and stuff. And then with a bit of
0: alcohol, I just I managed to get out of my shell. Uh, well, I don't know, but there was a more common, you know, like if I'm like, I'm generally very funny and positive, and if I get drunk, I, that that gets like even more, you know, I get more like fun and loving, and I don't know. But uh, for for them, were like to me in in per- personally, it felt like when they were sober, there was one person, and then when they get drunk. The completely opposite person was suddenly. <laughs> maybe, uh,
1: uh, maybe living in Germany fucked them up. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs>
0: I don't know, but I was. I'm uh, joking. I'm joking. I, I'm curious. I'm curious to 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 go visit uh, Denmark as soon as possible. First, as please a do.
1: It's a really nice place, and also Germany is a really nice nice place. My brother he's been living there for like six years or so, and I was going to Berlin quite extensively, and it's one of my favorite places whatsoever. Mike's ex-girlfriend was German, and uh, I really like uh,
0: Germany in general. Yeah, there are a lot of, in, on this podcast I've talked many times about like, the misconceptions of Germany and uh, how actually, you know, actually I, I'm, I've heard from, from um, another author, uh, I think it's called, he's called Mark Manson. Uh, he He wrote a book that's called the Subdal Art of Not Giving a Fuck and also like uh, he has a blog where he writes articles weekly and he has lived in many countries and he says like the best part of a country is also the worst part of a country because for example. I've lived in Italy where people are very, you know, taking it easy and being chill and very friendly and very warm. But that's always, like, if you need to do even something serious or work, can be the same thing. And then it gets a little annoying. And in Germany, people are super precise. But also when you're supposed, you know, to take it easy and have fun, they still keep it a little bit more uh, organized and precise. And that's, like, so... You cannot have it all nev- never nowhere. And yeah, exactly. Did did you have any cultural shock when you moved to Denmark in the beginning or uh, not sure. No, I
1: think by this time I already had a uh, identity erasure. I mean, I didn't really feel like I belonged anywhere when I, after I graduated. So, it was not in the sense that I was lost, but in the sense that I felt like we're kind of the same everywhere. Like, it's the same people are living, they're just populating different places on Earth, and then we just set some sort of like economical and and paranoid boundaries. But besides that, we're all the same everywhere. So at this time, when I moved to Denmark, I had this already this idea of, okay, we're the same, it doesn't really matter where you are. It was more of a language barrier because they're, I mean, Danish in general is like the most fucked up language you can uh, find.
0: And did you manage to learn some Danish?
1: Or? Yeah, I did. I did learn some Danish.
0: That's nice. And did you talk in the office in English or in Danish?
1: No, we talked mainly uh, English because it's it's very mixed, the office. It's very cosmopolitan. I see. And uh, was it there where you really leveled
0: up your skills into archivists and uh, CG architecture? Uh, what were your tasks? Were you more a designer or were you more into the graphics and representation of a project?
1: I mean, over a period of 10 years, it changed quite a bit. It started by, I think in the beginning, I was hired for RVs, And then I did that for quite uh, some time. And then uh, then I became a project lead where I had to lead basically a team that was between three and 20 people. And then slowly I became better and better in doing, in doing projects. And then by the end, I was just doing, I was mainly like a PM, like project manager, where we just get a team and then we would just do a project from concept to detailed design, and okay. hand it to the clients. So I do the presentations with clients and all that. I was responsible. I was basically responsible for delivering a project
0: from from the beginning to the end. And did you have any yes. partner in charge or Burke himself? That did you did give you some guidance?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I mean. The, the way the office works, there's always, like a, there's always like a partner in charge. And then there's the BRK that has kind of the final word. But in reality, when you've been there for so long, you don't really like the partners. They just take care that maybe the guys that are a bit fresher in the office, they get a bit of guidance. And then when you're, after 10 years, nobody really looks after your shoulder and sees like oversees the project. You're mainly responsible for it
0: and are really, really like uh, these computational design geniuses and freaks or you just uh, have some people that uh, implement those ideas when you have some crazy shape or some crazy form in your mind?
1: I think, again, it's a really good mix. It's like there's, there's a bunch of really smart people in the office and then there's also a big team and there's also like, I don't have time for it, so I think you have you have all the all the ingredients to make a nice project in there and um, I'm
0: curious uh, you said you've been working there for ten years, and uh, at what point after ten years, which is to me a very long uh, time, and you were leading projects in like one of uh, top of top of the league offices not only in Denmark but in the world currently I I could say also in the best office of our times because Bjork Ingels maybe is one of the architects that shifted architecture as uh, back in the days like Corbusier did and then um, OMA and now big Uh, what made you think okay I don't want to work anymore there I want to go and uh, start my company or how did that how did you take that step in your life?
1: Um, yeah, actually, I never really had a deep uh, thinking on it whatsoever. But I guess it's the fact that I, was, I needed to be closer to my family in a way, you know. Like my family was getting older, like my parents. And then, of course, with age, there comes problems as well. So slowly I was thinking, like, how can I shift closer to, uh, to them or like at least to Romania? And then uh, I think it was more of a of a need rather than a conscious decision. It was more like I need to kind of slowly uh, get closer to, to the roots.
0: And um, was it for you hard to go back to Romania after so many years abroad? Or were you happy? Because sometimes I can, because for me it's a little different. You left Romania when you were young, but you have still have had your... Um, uh, childhood there and your teenage years. I moved with my family when I was eight and uh, came back to Bulgaria sporadically. And now for me, it's really hard to wrap my mind around the possibility to go back to to Bulgaria for many reasons. So how did you did you feel uncomfortable in the beginning or were you happy and relieved to, to go back?
1: No, I think uh, coming back was fun. I mean, uh you kind of switch from one language to the other quite fast. And I think uh, Romanian language, even though it's like a rather poor in terms of words, there's very little words. There's a uh, certain nuances of the language that I knew very well. And I think certain things, they're really fun in your own language. And I think this thing with language, I don't know if it's, of course it's not like the prettiest city in the world. It's like, uh, it's, there's a bit of dirt still going on there's a bit of derelict buildings the government's a bit corrupt but overall i feel like uh, it's much 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 better than when i left and then and then people in general they're also like pretty pretty nice it's i mean i don't see i don't see any bad part in uh, living in when i see like also the weather it's it's nice and it's warm and all that and i don't know it's it's comfortable living here and this thing that you can get very close i mean you can get insanely close to a person just by not having uh, nuances in the language, you know, not having boundaries in the way you speak to a person. It's it's beautiful.
0: And uh, your partner, sorry, you have to excuse me, I forgot his name. Uh, he he was also in Copenhagen with you, or he was already back in Romania, and you were just friends.
1: No, we were uh, really good friends in Copenhagen. He also worked at Big. His name is Ovidio. And then uh, we both uh, moved to Romania together. And uh, now, as we're growing a bit, we're also looking into making new partners and stuff. So I think uh, sooner or later, we're going to have to do that because, again, I don't believe in this kind of uh, hierarchical environment where you just sit at the top and you're something like a boss. But I believe that I believe more in a co op, in like a cooperational system where everybody gets like. In in the end, everybody gets almost equal shares and then we kind of make sure that everything uh, happens uh, properly.
0: That's a nice uh, philosophy. And um, so you went back to Romania and then uh, did you have already planned how to start the business or you first take a little bit of time off and then you start planning things or how did
1: uh, the transition We. We had a company in Copenhagen and we already had a few collaborators there and the people we were working with. And then uh, then when we moved back, we uh, kind of slowly... Get, we, we, we got a bit more help from a f- few guys like uh, Valentin and Mircea. They were like the first ones to join. Last night, we celebrated uh, Valentin's first year. So, uh, yeah, I, I guess that's that's how it all happened. We just... We, we moved to Romania and then slowly we started the... Uh, We started getting a a bit of help. And now we have uh, Valentin and Mika, we have Iwana. we have Mihai, we have Alex, we have Ovidio, we have myself and Mateo. Uh,
0: And um, when you started your company in Copenhagen, uh, so you were just the two of you guys in the beginning?
1: Yeah, it was Ovidio and I, kind um, of uh, in the office. But then we had a few people helping us remotely. So uh, remotely
0: from where from another from another region of the world or No, they were both in Copenhagen.
1: It was uh, yeah, they were both
0: uh, both the guys were in Copenhagen. So how, how the whole so you guys quit at big and said we're starting an office. Uh, did you get an office space? Uh, did you had already computers, softwares? How was the process in the starting up uh, your own company?
1: We didn't really think about uh, doing uh, visuals at first. I think it was uh, just me alone uh, when I left the office. And then I uh, started, uh, I mean, I started, I just bought a computer and then I did an architectural competition with a bit of help from a few friends. It was a kindergarten in Iceland. And I had no idea that I'm going to qualify for anything. Or I just submitted the project and then I just hoped. And then... uh, Maybe a month later, I get a phone call from the guy saying that uh, we got a second place for the competition, which was actually quite a a nice price to get. And it was also like a good sum that would actually help us start uh, the office. And then uh, with that, we slowly moved forward.
0: So you started as an architectural office, actually. Um... Yeah, it would it would be curious to see this project too. Uh, so if if you have any any information online, uh, we can then link it also so that the people can go check these different uh, phases of your uh, creative life, so to say. And, uh, yeah, for sure. And and from there on, did you get some other uh, projects, or how did it develop from architecture to architectural visualization?
1: I think we was uh, while I was doing this uh, this competition. I had few friends in uh, different offices. So I had few friends in young uh, Gale's office. Someone at Bing. Then it was like people at Kengo Kuma. Then slowly, like uh, I don't know, people just were just asking if I can help with renders. And then I was like, at first I was like, yeah, I just take one or I take two or I take five. And then slowly, just became so many renders that I had no way I could do them myself. And then that's why we we asked. Few people, if they want to join the office and help us do this uh, stuff together.
0: I was wondering because you switch from you know being a project manager, which I don't know how it works at big or in in the Copenhagen in general in the architectural field. Uh, here in Germany, the project manager manager is not actually so much involved into designing. He's more the coordinator and the, organi- the, the whole organizational part. Uh, when you did this this job for a few years, was it the same for you and? How did you, if it was? How did you manage not to let your um, skills into 3D modeling and rendering fade, so to say, in, in time?
1: I mean, big like uh, other offices is just it has a bit of a organic uh, structure, so I don't think uh, what I, I don't think there's like a, a really set structure per se. It's more like, okay, we there's project managers, there's project leads, there's interns, there's all sorts of things. But in reality, the roles are very organic. So uh, you can be involved in anything you want pretty much as a as a project manager or as an intern. You, can, you could have an intern leading a team of 20, or you could have a project manager just sitting around and doing nothing and being paid and everybody hates him. So I guess my role was more like on paper as a project manager, but in reality, I was more responsible for, I would, I would at times draw diagrams in Rhino or help with some details of the facade or figure out with the facade team where the gas pipe can go or stuff like that, you know it's, it's very organic, it's not it's not really set in that respect.
0: I see and um, what I was also wondering is before you took the leap to, to go on your own Uh, Did you have prepared yourself some savings for a certain amount of time that you thought, okay, now I can quit and, uh, and, um, you know, have some um, economical safety, so to say? Or you were quite uh, comfortable because uh, I guess after 10 years, it would have been easier for you to eventually go back to big?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, I had so many backups. Like, I could always just go back to big. I did have some savings. And then it's also, like, the Danish government that would, like, if you get in misery, it can help you out, like, the social security or, like, the social welfare. And then I could also, like, I mean, if I would, my parents are always there, like, so if I would just be in deep shit, I think they would help me out. So in that way, I I would never want to rely on my parents. I I mean, I left Romania when I was 19 and I didn't really ask them for anything, just with a few exceptions when when I was really deep in shit. But in general, I did have some
0: some certain backups. I, I see, I see, but uh, um, from what you're telling me, it feels like really um, Copenhagen was um, is, for many reasons, this uh, design architectural design hub and design hub, because first you have um, a lot of uh, offices, which are high-end offices on the world level. And then you have this good um, structure, I guess, uh, educational and welfare structure so that people get more uh, innovative. And then probably the low uh, level of corruption in the country gets also you know, the, the fairness if there is a competition that the certain talented office is going to win it and, and so on. So uh, this is my interpretation currently of Copenhagen. And, um, I think that, that city is really ahead also in terms of urban design and uh, you mentioned Gale Architects, which, for me, young Gael, it's a very uh, pioneer in this in this sense of design the city. so it's it's really interesting. And uh, did you why didn't you try also to do did you try, I don't know, did you try to do some architectural projects? Uh, in Romania as well or have you have any experience in this
1: Actually, I do have experience I mean in reality I'm just a certified architect I have a stamp here so I like the title of architect in Romania is protected so once you graduate you have to work for 2 years under some apprentice and then after that you get a stamp so you can actually do your own projects I didn't do all this because I graduated in Ireland but then I went to Copenhagen and I did my apprentice in that respect in Copenhagen, and then, and then I came back here. For uh, I mean, I had an interview here where I with the Order of Architects—that's what it's called here. It's a kind of the union. And then after that, I got a stamp, so I can stamp it. But I didn't—I wasn't really involved in uh, any architectural project besides my mom's uh, renovation, like her house renovation and stuff like that. But I don't think I'm. Uh, I don't think I have the patience to wait for uh, 10 years for a project to be developed or like even five years or two years. Our deadlines now in the office, they're about two weeks. So we get a project and within two weeks, we need to hand in regardless of how big or how small the project. And I think I like this kind of pace, you know, that you don't and also the fact that you don't really get attached to one idea that can be slaughtered one day by uh, an economical issue, or I don't know, engineering revision or uh, downside of a client or stuff like that. you know in our case, we don't we we get attached to every project because it's so sure, but we we don't really get that feeling of uh, giving birth to a baby, in this case, a project like an architectural project. Um,
0: and um, well, I, I don't want to ask you about client acquisition because from what I understood, because of your connection and you know, your talent, you get uh, um, tasks from this... Uh, I saw on your Instagram that you have a lot of... and on your website that you have done some of the coolest renderings for big... Uh, for many projects that people, people might know in, if they're in the architectural field. Uh, but um, what is your workflow today in your office? Um, generally, how it works—the um, whole process. Like, let's say I am a office. I come to you and I say I want to to get an image from you guys. Um, how how this will start the whole workflow?
1: Yeah, so we get most of the projects from uh, Messenger, like Facebook and stuff like that. It's like a most of the guys we get projects from, it's people we know. And then uh, then they, they'd be writing, hey, we get this new project, and then would you guys be available to do this kind of work? And they would be, yeah, if we have time. In reality, we don't have a lot of time. We In reality, we could be a team of 20 now or even more, but we just sometimes don't take projects because we need to recover, or sometimes we don't take projects because we don't have time and so on. And then then the project gets in-house, And then we all look at it, we save it on the server, we all get together or we just, each of us, at their own computer. And then we all look at the project and see, mainly it's like a PDF describing everything, like the views and then the materials and stuff like that. And then we all look through the PDF and then we choose the views. Somehow... Let's say maybe somebody doesn't, like Matteo doesn't, lately he doesn't want to do areas anymore. So he, we try to not give him any more areas because he's uh, sick of them. So then we share the views between each each of us and then we either get a strategy of how we do this. Like maybe some of us clean the rhino file because most of the projects come in rhino format. So some of us clean the rhino files, some of us prepare the site. And then once we have kind of like a clean a decent file that we can all use, we just put it in Wax, and then we start populating it. So if two views are rather similar, maybe that forms a team where the team just sits there and then just does these two views. And if there are like 10 views that are similar, maybe that small team does the 10 views. And if there's like six areas, maybe there becomes a, a team that does the areas. Yeah. Stuff like that. And if there's like an animation, we so, so once we're done, with, if we have 16 views, let's say, and an animation, we do the 16 views. And once we're done with that, we start on the animation because the animation is the, basically the result of the renders.
0: Uh, and if you have uh, 16 uh, views uh, or in an animation, is that a, the two week project or how long it takes to you to, to finalize such a project?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I that's why I said 16 and animation, because that's the project we just had made in Friday. So it was a 16 view and one a three minute animation. And uh, we did the views in a week. And then once we were done with the views, we did the animation in a week.
0: Okay, that's, that's, uh, that sounds very productive. Uh, do you ever guys do late nights and weekends, or you try not to? How does that work?
1: <laughs> I mean, in theory, we're trying to uh, get rid of that. We're trying to become better and then make sure that we have some life as well. But I think because not everybody has the same level of uh, skills as we speak because if, like some of us, they're a bit more new and then they're like on a learning curve. We still end up Working quite late sometimes, and at the weekends. But I think if we would all be at the same level now, we we wouldn't have to do that.
0: I see. Well, um, and you may, because from now on uh, the the people who listen to this podcast have heard a lot of times uh, the names of the softwares which are Rhino, 3ds Max, and always say we don't sponsor that softwares. It's just about the workflow. You mentioned you clean the file. What the what this process looks like?
1: I mean, the process is more like uh, you maybe sometimes get a file, like a Rhino file that has double surfaces. It's about two gigabytes of file. It's super heavy, hard to work in. A lot of areas that you wouldn't see in the renders, Uh, certain details that you won't see in the renders. Maybe there's like uh, handles on the doors, but you're just doing aerial views. Or maybe there's like toilets that are super detailed, but you again, you're doing aerial view. And things like that, you know. So you clean mainly, like you clean the file, so you mainly be able to work with, and it fits your kind of views.
0: So uh, generally, because you have a knowledge of uh, of how people use Rhino also in the architectural office, because you have worked big, uh, do really they use all these objects, 3D handles, and uh, toilets because they directly want to obtain the drawing in Rhino or? Not everybody does that, like that because my personal, not work...
1: everybody does that. no, it's a, it's it's a bit exaggerated. Not everybody does that. In general, like if we work with like Engo kumas, noheta, OMA, big all the big firms, they're actually underdesigned the objects. They're just they don't have details. so then cleaning, meaning adding detail to it, you know, they just give you a lot of times just like massings if there if there's a master plan and you need to add facades and detail and stuff like that that you're going to see in your views. And yeah, it depends It with cleaning, it's not like one fits all process, but it's rather adapting to certain situation.
0: I see. And um, how about the post-production? Do you have a lot of post-production work or what side side uh, uh, softwares do you use for all the animation? For example, because uh, I've seen recently you have done some animation for some uh, project from big, like some islands or something. And I guess you have done also the animation for his projects in Japan, for Toyota, I'm not sure, here. And I see that, for example, graphics pops up in the beginning. Then what is this site uh, post-production of um, softwares you use?
1: Yeah, so so more recent, I mean, what we post online, it's maybe uh, 2% of what we actually produce. But when it comes to uh, softwares, we use uh, Adobe Suit. Like we just use, uh, so so we if we're doing these diagrams in the beginning, we use uh, After Effects for them and then uh, Illustrator. So we illustrate everything, like we take all the line drawing from Rhino, we illustrate in Illustrator and then we moved it into After Effects and then we animate it. And then we do all the, like we put the whole movie together in Premiere and then all the 3D job, all the rendering and stuff like that, it's all in uh, 3ds max.
0: Yeah, that's uh, interesting, and um, I was curious because you have had this development in your career, which is very interesting. From applying to to Big by making your first uh, portfolio collage, then you have been evaluating uh, portfolios in Big. Then you have moved. Um, out as an architect and now you work in the archivist uh, industry and I was wondering um, what does, because I know Matteo who works at your office and he definitely have had to uh, apply what do you look in uh, in the portfolios um, when people apply at your office
1: yeah I think uh, with Mateo in general he was a good friend of uh, my partner Ovi so I didn't even uh, look at his portfolio. I think he's more like it's yeah, just a good friend, and then we're just going to be working together. And I think in general, like we didn't really per se looked at portfolio, like thinking that it's a really good portfolio. But it's more like we talked a bit with uh, all our colleagues, and was more important that we have a chemistry together, that we understand each other. Because ideally, they'd, like all our colleagues, they would be there, kind of not hating us, but also we would not hate them. So I think it's like this kind of uh, good vibes or like just making sure that we, we're not hating each other is like most important rather than just uh, super skills. Because, I mean, of course, imagine it's not like a utopian. It's more like we have a love-hate relationship. Like sometimes maybe uh, somebody in the office hates me or sometimes they hate Valentino or sometimes they hate uh, one other guy or I hate somebody. But it's more like, we have to do some like sometimes we work under stress or like under tough deadlines and then of course there's like if if we fuck up we just end up not hating each other, but more like we give up a bit on each others and uh, but in general yeah I think it's it's more important that we do that that we kind of get together and make sure that we have a good vibe rather than the skills themselves because those anybody can develop. I think anybody today can do a, a good render under good guidance and stuff like
0: that. But what are the technical initial skills that you expect from somebody to be able to join your office?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. You know I, I think if they know how to use a 3ds Max and then either Corona or V-Ray and a bit of Photoshop, I think that's that's a good start.
0: Yeah, but uh, using Corona, uh, like using three uh, um, D S Max, uh, can be on the very different, uh, very different levels. Like uh, I don't know, for example, I could uh, model some chair or I could model some walls, but uh, that doesn't mean I can use three D S Max. So, from which level do you think it's? Uh, do you think there is a certain amount of experience, like in time-wise, that they need to have had with the software, or?
1: <laughs> yeah, of course. I know. I, I know where you're pointing. Of course, ideally everybody should be like super skilled and have been doing like 500 images before they help before they join our office or help us. But that ne- that's never the case. That's never going to happen. I mean, we most of the times we. Most of the times, people join and
0: when, when they're very basic, let's say. I see that's interesting. I'm uh, questioning here because it would be fun to to at some point maybe transition to the more archivist and uh, graphic uh, graphic career. So, and I'm asking also for all the people that um, might be interested in um, in this. Another thing that I'm I'm curious about, if you can give me some overview. I don't want to know precise numbers or uh, stuff like that. But um, how is uh, like to to work in um, in an archivist industry uh, in, in the archivist industry in Romania in uh, some Romanian office? Um, the people who are employed. Uh, do they have uh, like um, wage that allows them a pretty comfortable life uh, in in Romania or in general everywhere and around Europe uh, compared to European standards? Uh, what what could you tell me about this? Because I've had uh, some guests from um, Vicway, which is a, an office in Bulgaria in Sofia, and they were saying like, yeah, well, if you live in Bulgaria, the the wage is really good and you have a very so to say, chilled life um, as uh, outside of the office, but of course you'll have to a little bit um, downsize if you go abroad.
1: I mean, uh, yeah, it's funny enough, but I think some of the guys, they maybe earn more than I was earning after 10 years at Big, which is crazy enough. But uh, yeah, some I think nobody is underpaid and nobody's ever going to be underpaid. And I think... I don't know if it's like I mean, for European standards, for sure it's we we have good deals. That's for sure, for sure. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, now it depends on everybody's needs and what what everybody thinks it's it's good for themselves. But you
0: can also ask Matteo. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> they, uh, maybe maybe at some point he'll participate in the podcast. Who knows? Uh, we, yeah, <laughs> we, we can we can think about it. Um, but uh, it, it was curious for me to to interview someone from from Romania because um, I feel this sort of camaraderie with Romania because it's you know the the whole uh, border with Bulgaria and we joined the EU at the same year and uh, sort of. Uh, Similar countries on on the standard, so I was uh, curious that I have this closeness to Romania, but in the main in the in the meanwhile also you know I never never been to Romania or never never talked uh, with someone who lives there, uh, so I was um, I was really curious about it.
1: Um, Actually, like a one of my good friends is also from Bulgaria and he was considering coming to R- Romania to join us, but uh, I cannot say his name because I'm not sure if he would want his name to be on the podcast or something. But uh, yeah, if he listens to that I uh, salute him because he knows who he is.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, um, I think that now Eastern Eastern Europe, um, starting from Bulgaria, Romania, and then Ukraine and uh, Russia, uh, and uh, poland also um, hungary I, I know some offices i don't know how is in the czech republic it's sort of this um center for uh archivists and um do you do you think there is some certain reason for that or um yeah
1: i think there's I, I i mean most certainly it's because it's the same with any other sub consultant so you have like a let's say, an architectural firm, and then they would subcontract other firms for doing uh, certain jobs. And it's the same with, like, if you have, like, I don't know, an IT company, or if you're, like, a construction company, or if you're, like, an airplane company, you subcontract a lot of the contracts in certain areas where, in some way, the wages are uh, uh, less higher than your own country, but in reality, they're direct proportional to the living there. So I guess that's why Europe is standing so strong today, and then life here—it's one of the best in the world, if not one of the best. The best life in the world—it's because we kind of manage that everybody gets a certain life standard.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point of view, and I think. But it's also curious to me because the tech, the the know-how and the technical skills actually in that area of the world has developed so. Um, so much. Do you think that, uh, because let's say that archivists is a pretty, in architecture in general, it's a pretty hard environment because you have these very um, close uh, deadlines. Um, do you think that uh, people there are more like uh, open to be hustling and be working hard because, you know, it's, um, I think, this post communist era in both, in, in all the Eastern Europe? has unlocked, you know, this possibility for people finally to be improving their lifestyle even further on and now more ready to be uh, suffering with extra hours and stuff like that, which maybe in center, Central Europe it's more like people are more like taking it more, um, I, I don't want to say easy, but more like, um, yeah, they have certain benefits like, I don't know, working hours and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I only have the two uh, point of references. Actually, I have three point of references. I have the Tokyo experience, Copenhagen, and Romanian experience. And I think from these three, I feel that Romania is the most fortunate. And I'm not sure if it's because we're doing ARCVIS rather than architecture. But uh, I think in Copenhagen, it was a bit more intense. We worked even more hours and more stressful. And again, now with working hours in Romania, I mean, at least in ARCVIS, or at least in our office, it's because we, we're we still developing. I mean, once we're going to get to a certain level of uh, skills, I don't think we're going to be needing to stay that late anymore. And I think the stress level is not as dramatic as it is in architecture. But yeah, I mean, Tokyo is pretty hardcore when it comes to working hours and stress. And Copenhagen was kind of the same working hours, but the stress level was a bit higher. But again, I was in a different field. I was doing architecture. Rather
0: than archivists? Well, I think that architecture puts a little extra pressure on it because um, the money on, on the plate are way more, you know, talks about. Yeah, exactly. we are involved in millions, and uh, I mean, archivists generally are thousands involved, and you not know, so. And
1: the, yeah, exactly. I don't even understand, like, what was in, uh, let's say, uh, Piarca's head when he was just getting, like, a 20 year old from Romania leading a project that was worth, it. thing like, uh, 300 million or something like that it was just so i mean uh, yeah when it comes to, to, to this kind of a level of a, like this magnitude is just like you would, you would want to have you would think that you want to have the most skilled people on board but he was just like letting 20 year olds fucking around
0: well but i think that the, that shows you that people are people everywhere and it doesn't matter how old are you where you're from you you can you can do a good job um, I was recently listening to there is this series of shows called uh, Architects Not Architecture where uh, you know groundbreaking architects give speeches about uh, more their life than their work and um, I heard the one of uh, Dan Stubergard from Kobe Architecture in, in Copenhagen and he also started with, uh, with Björke and Plot back in the days
1: yeah, exactly. And I met the guy once at the party, and then he was uh, like, Björke introduced me, saying that, "Oh yeah, he's one of the nicest guys in the office, and he's super talented." And then, a few beers later, Dan was like, "Hey, if you ever get bored of, uh, of big, you can always uh, come join Kobe." What <laughs> is the fun side story?
0: I, I met I met Björke once here in Frankfurt because he came to the opening of uh, of the, um, I think Omni Tower they did here.
1: Yeah, exactly. And the shifted level is one. That's pretty
0: yeah. cool. And um, I got uh, the opportunity to, to chat sometimes with his partner, Kai Bergman. And yeah, also Kai. with some other guy, one of the partners, but I forgot, I think uh, Patterson, something Patterson was a Danish name.
1: Andreas Andreas Klok. Andreas, uh, yeah, exactly. He they He's were, like one of the nicest guys alive. Yeah, they... He's a, a, He's so one nice. of our best uh, clients and friends actually.
0: Yeah, they, 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 they're very, very um, nice, down to earth, all of them. And then I met Dan um, because I went to one exposition in Munich. It was, uh, I think it was uh, beginning of 2019. I went to this exposition um, about construction and he was, I went there because he was giving a lecture. Um, together with um, one of the partners at uh, MVRDV and um, I had the opportunity to talk with him a little bit and uh, I have their book Our Urban Living Room and he was very cool because he he wrote me like a wish on the book Uh, so um, but in his uh, speech he was saying that uh, he left big uh, after a, call, a phone call. <laughs> I don't know if it's a, a, literally a true story or he did it for the for the, for the the story. But he said that um, once they're doing a pro competition, didn't have a really clear idea. And uh, Bjorke called him and said, we're going to spell the name of the city with the letters V-E-L-L-L-E or VEL, something like that. Weiler. Weiler, something like that. And he was like, uh, yeah, I was um, I was a little bit tired of my boss calling <laughs> with crazy ideas, so, so I decided I want to try on my own. And uh, I wanted to know from you, because you have transitioned uh, on your own, um, do you have uh, way more pleasure into working on, 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 on your own? And do you, does it feel like everything you do, every extra hour, every extra push you do, uh, worth sort of more because you're more doing it for yourself or how do you see this part it, because nowadays we have this sort of um, admiration for entrepreneurship and um, I'm curious to know from you if it feels way better to be working on your own company than rather in another's one company I don't
1: think I had this uh, hate towards working in a company or something that. I think I felt Somehow, when I was uh, at least when I was in the beginning at big, I felt that we we're a bit of a crew, you know, that we we're a bit of a of a family. And then I, I have a feeling that even more so, I want to do that do that now because I saw big growing from seventy people to five hundred, and I think I would rather much want that we grow in some sort of a more uh, cooperative way that we just uh, we don't uh, we don't end up having like discrepancies between, yeah, like. Some people are just going to be scrapping the surface, and some others just going to be getting like uh, all the income. So I think it's it's nicer that we, from very early early on, we we start setting up these rules that okay, we work more in a cooperative way, and as we grow a bit, I think everybody should grow together.
0: I see, and um, I was curious to know what is your opinion about the current situation with the pandemics if that has had any um, effect on your work in a sense that...
1: Yeah, I mean, it did affect us a lot. We ended up just having uh, so much more work than we used to. I think everybody was just sitting indoors and hoping that uh, the world is going to get better and just wanting wanting to finish everything now as if the world would end up uh, tomorrow. And then they just dropped like so many projects on us but I hope that it's going to relax a bit and people are going to realize that the world is not ending and we're going to be slowing
0: down a bit. Um, I, that's really funny because I would have think the, the opposite, that people would have put projects on a standby to think, okay, um, we have to evaluate if we're uh, going to do this project at all and uh, wait for it. But uh, you say the opposite, which is, which is f- uh, really funny. But, I mean, you have a different kind of... Um, Architectural office as a client, so um, probably that's a little bit helpful.
1: Yeah, I almost have this fear that if we stop doing projects, like uh, it's going to be a really bad uh, kind of like, it's gonna be. It's going to be, it's going to, it almost, it's almost going to sound like the end of the world. Because imagine that we're working with like the biggest offices in the world, and once these guys are not going to be doing projects, then I don't know who's going to be doing projects.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's true. Um, but I'm um, curious. And work-wise, have you switched something? Like, uh, have you worked remotely somehow to social distance at work? Or how is the so- the the situation in Romania? Because I remember in summer it was getting a little bit tougher. Uh, but now on now it's crazy everywhere. So did you get some some? uh precautionary measurements in the office sending people working from home no
1: i think the government here was rather uh, nice so they didn't really impose that we all uh, work from home but we would be allowed to work as long as we have a kind of a paper from the firm saying that we are allowed to travel to work so we kept the office open at all times and i think that's kind of nice for social interaction and for humans in general that they don't sit at home in pajamas <laughs> and then they just pretend to work but that we just like hang around and we work kind of together in a team i think that's i think that's kind of the human nature a bit that you want to be a social animal rather than be sitting alone
0: uh, yeah i'm really i'm really impressed of your philosophy of uh, the family the social the doing things together so i guess it will it will, it will, it must be very nice to to work with you guys and um as you were saying in, in every even in your family sometimes you might end up uh hating for a moment uh, your dad your mom your brother but then uh when things calms down it's all good again and uh so i think it's totally normal in any human relationship uh it it works like that um but yeah i'm, I'm really glad you accepted to participate on the podcast and uh, I'm really glad that uh, finally I managed to 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 speak with uh, someone from from that area. And uh, you, man, are really really cool guy and really really kind uh, and uh, with really interesting point of views. Um, I guess that this talk will be very inspirational for a lot of the listeners because of your. You have this sort of calm, positive vibe. So um, thank you very much and. Um, before we, we conclude our conversation uh, if you want you can uh, shout out a little bit where people can find uh, um, your you online and your office and on social media websites and wherever
1: oh man thanks so much for the really nice words I really appreciate it and thanks again for having me uh, on board on the podcast I think you're really doing a great job with uh, this podcast and inviting people and i be helping even the future generation let's call them to kind of understand how our these works and how to develop and so and yeah i think we're uh, we're on instagram i mean i'm on instagram and as we speak we're working on the website that's going to be www.bucharest.studio but we are not up and running we're going to be up and running maybe less than two weeks let's say and um yeah let's let's keep in touch and uh, let's keep up the good work
0: Uh, Yeah, as soon as it's online, we're going to be posting it on our Instagram page, which uh, for now it's uh, smaller than yours, but uh, growing steadily. And also on the podcast, I'll announce it uh, whenever it's online. And before we really conclude the talk, I want to remind the listeners that um, if they want to support the podcast, they follow our social media, which is Instagram at TCI podcast. Um, Then the groups, uh, the pages on Facebook and LinkedIn which are the Creative Insider and from now on to have a collection of the best of, of every podcast they can go on the creativeinsider.com and subscribe our email list, our newsletter and monthly they will receive uh, the best quotes and the best uh, topics we have discussed on this podcast and so thank you very much, thank you Lucian one more time and I uh, hope to talk to you soon and maybe meet you in Bucharest uh, very soon
1: Thanks so much again for uh, having me on board. I really appreciate it. So uh, have a nice uh, rest of the weekend and uh, talk soon. Yeah, bye-bye.